Looking to fast forward your practice goals? Commonwealth Financial Network can help you evolve your business by providing entrepreneurial capital, affiliation flexibility, and tailored business strategies. Everything you need to put your practice into the fast lane. Welcome to a better path to success. Welcome to Commonwealth. To learn more, visit Commonwealth.com. Commonwealth Financial Network is a member of FINRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Hi, I'm Suzanne Syracuse. Welcome to my new podcast focused on the future, keys to building a profitable, sustainable, and impactful business. And I am excited to be partnering with wealthmanagement.com on this. This series will focus on what firms need to embrace to ensure their growth and success for the future. And you'll hear from industry leaders and advisors on what is working for them. The content is directed at firms that are already successful and looking to stay that way, and also for those who are focused on taking their firms to that next level. I have a great lineup of guests in store, and today I am talking with industry icon, speaker extraordinaire, consultant, independent board member, and former Pershing Advisor Solutions CEO, Mark Tiberjan. So welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for being here today. It makes me so happy to see your face and to talk with you today. Thank you so much, Suzanne. It's uh, great to be here and uh, congratulations on this new program. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's going great so far. So Mark, you are the person that I learned the most from about the business of financial advice and your guidance throughout my career has really been invaluable. And I, I know I speak for like so many firm leaders who you've consulted with. Our industry is in a much better place because of you. And the people that are running some of the largest firms in our industry are much smarter because of you. And I don't want to embarrass you, but that's how I really feel. And I want to start with our questions a, a little bit about your background in wealth management and how I first came to know you. You were working at Moss Adams. And while you were there, you created two advisor benchmarking studies, one focused on compensation and staffing and one on overall firm financial performance. And you, after you left to become the CEO of Pershing Advisor Solutions, and when Moss Adams decided to become an RIA themselves, the studies needed a new home. And that's where I come in. <laughs> and that's where Investment News comes in. Investment News acquired them when I was the publisher, and I got a crash course in everything practice management when you signed on as the sponsor of that study, you really taught all of us the ropes on research around you know, key firm data points and interpreting that data. And much of the narrative in those studies was essentially how to run a profitable and sustainable business. A lot of what this podcast is actually focused on. So I'd love to ask you to dive into what you believe firms and their leaders need to do to not just be profitable, but also sustainable? Great question, Suzanne. And actually, what many people probably don't know is my uh, history and exposure to the wealth management business goes uh, way beyond Moss Adams. Uh, I was a, a writer for Financial Magazine in Chicago in the 70s and uh, worked for an, an RIA and a business valuation consulting firm when that recruited me to Seattle at, in the middle of the 70s. 
and then ran a consulting firm that was focused on training business owners and bankers on financial management. So all of this really teed up what became my commitment to this business. And in fact, it was the benchmarking study that was started at a company called Management Advisory Services, which we sold to Moss Adams, which at the time was a large industry consolidator of accounting and consulting firms. So I just wanted to put that in perspective because these ideas are not abstract or just theories, but the things that I've lived uh, throughout my career. That's fascinating. You know, I did not know. I know you started as a journalist because we've had many conversations about that and a rate and a radio personality, right? You're on the radio. You've got such a good voice for that. But I did not know that the studies actually were a version created by another firm and that Moss Adams um, acquired them. So that, again, I always learned something from you. So, so based on some of that, what are, what are the things that firms need to do now to be profitable and sustainable for the future based on a lot of that research that you've conducted and at, at, at your time at um, at uh, Pershing, of course, and then also now as a consultant? So when we look at uh, this profession today, what we recognize is that it's going through profound change. So the assumptions that people have made about the business uh, are not going to be ones that live in the past, but they live in the future because there are so many forces that change it. But there's a discipline in management that I think causes uh, leaders to think differently about their approach. And generally speaking, I follow a linear process where it begins with strategy, which informs the structure, which informs the people and people processes, uh, which informs ultimately the profitability. So strategy, structure, people, process, and profitability is really where each of us have to be looking at in order to drive an enduring business. And if people biz, build a business to endure, they don't have to think about building a business to sell because it will be one with value regardless of what they do. So I think that the assumptions going into the business today uh, are that when we look at strategy, uh, it's important not to be a complete mimic of other firms there are best practices, but then there is your practice. Mm -hmm. And so recognizing what other people are doing well and replicating elements of it, but finding your own differentiator is going to be key. And this is going, going to inform everything you do about uh, the way in which you invest and build your own business. Let me ask a question, because you said a lot of important things right there. How does one... What, what's your advice on an, on uh, for a firm that is looking to either evolve their strategy. Maybe they've never, and I know that there's plenty of advisory firms out there that that probably never even set their strategy when they began. They like kind of hung out their shingle and or brought over some clients from from transferring from another firm and just kind of just their business just started to evolve and grow, maybe without even a strategy in place. Um, I know you've seen that. I know I've seen that. Um, so what advice do you have on actually getting that starting from scratch at, or evolving your current strategy? I think, Suzanne, what you described is a classic entrepreneur, especially in the service business, is that uh, I think people create a business because they have an idea or a passion for what they're doing. They're not necessarily thinking about how they expand it beyond where they are. And so in professional services, uh, 
you will take on any client if they can fog a mirror. And if they're, uh, relate, if they're related, they are especially good prospect. But uh, as we know, every, every advisor firm goes through a cycle from wonder to blunder to thunder to plunder. And that wonder phase for some practices lasts forever. And for others, they go from wonder to plunder in a year. So uh, we have to recognize that when they move into the growth phase and they are striving to create scale and systemization and become an employer of choice and develop a brand, they have to think strategically about what that means for the business. So this requires that they be more clear about who their optimal client is and what services or solutions they'll provide to their optimal client. And then they have to think about how do they develop this brand uh, among that community of clients so that they're going to be relevant and optimally recognized as one of the top three providers serving that optimal client. Yeah, there's there's so much that you just said. And it's, I think, too, like beginning with the end in mind, what do you want to become, right? Do you want to be a lifestyle practice? Do you have ambitions to grow? Now, obviously, I think the majority of the people that are listening to this podcast have have an appetite to grow. And so setting that strategy and understanding like what your differentiators are is really, I think, very, very critical. How does one go about setting, uh, again, like setting the strategy process? So do you think that is done by one person kind of sitting there and thinking about it and then presenting it to the their leadership team? Is it a brainstorming session? In your consulting and at you know at your time at Moss Adams and Pershing, what did you see work actually like actually work the best? So I think that when we look at uh, strategy, it's not unlike developing an investment policy statement for your client. It's really creating a framework through which you're going to make decisions in what you're going to invest in, uh, how you're going to build your business, and what you're going to be known for. So I recommend generally a four corner strategy. The first corner is defining the market. Uh, who's your optimal client? So one way in which this occurs is that you take a look at your current client list and identify 20 or 25 of those that you'd like to replicate. Now, what are the characteristics of those clients that go beyond net worth? Uh, where are they in terms of their age demographic or gender or source of income or other factors that really would define those characteristics? And then you say, what are the needs of those clients going forward? Uh, the second component of that is saying, who else is serving my optimal client? And what are they doing well? Because I need to at least be at par with my competitors, but I hope that I can find one or two or three things where I can differentiate. The third corner then is looking at my own core capabilities. What do I do well to serve my optimal client? And where do I have gaps? Because this is going to tell me where I have to invest. And then the fourth really goes, Suzanne, to the point you made is that we all have a different definition of success. Uh, I don't know that being a lifestyle practice or being a dynamic growth firm is necessarily the definition of success. It might be measured in different ways, like mm -hmm. how do we impact the lives of people we serve? How do we become an employer of choice? How do we achieve financial independence on our own? Uh, how do we represent in the community uh, what we think is a true and ethical and impactful business going forward. So 
the definition of success has to be fulfilled somehow in its own strategy. And I think that if we only look at growth as the measure, then uh, we tend to uh, drive ourselves uh, insane trying to accomplish that because we're never fulfilled. Yeah, that's such, I'm so glad that you brought that up. You know, I say a lot in different podcasts that I do when I'm talking about my career journey and my shift into consulting is, you know, my definition of success changed significantly over the last 25 years, um, last 30 years, really. And really taking a temperature check of what that means to you as a firm leader, I think is really important. I think it's a big lesson that sometimes we forget to say, has that has that definition of success changed for you? And if so, has your will your strategy or your offering change? And in some cases, it 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 doesn't change because we don't reflect enough on what fulfillment looks like. And so, I think that there are many people who are coin operated, uh, and that is their driver. But are they ever fulfilled? It's a big question. It's something that we always have to pursue. And I think we also have this mantra that we hear that when you stop growing, you start dying. And so there's this fear of a knocking from the inside of the coffin that might be causing some of us to to think differently about our business. But uh, these levels of contentment and fulfillment are really a balancing act that we have to contemplate. Yeah, gosh, always, always, you always give me something to think about. And I, I would think the same for the listeners. So what are some high level trends that you're seeing from firms today, either in their service offerings or in their business models? Like what has you most excited right now? Some things that are shifting. I think there are several things that are shifting. Uh, They've been in place for a while, but I don't know that we've seen critical mass be achieved. Uh, So as an example, for as long as I've been around this business, which is about 50 years, uh, there has been a tendency to lead with investment or investment performance. And even in the case of firms that use passive strategies, uh, the tendency to reinforce the notion that the reason I'm hired is because uh, I manage your money. Uh, in truth, where we see the evolution occurring in this business is that the role of a financial advisor is helping their clients to navigate the financial choices. And in investment is deployment of their assets, but what are the other choices that people have to make for each stage of their life cycle? And that includes managing risk, not just managing wealth or income or other elements like this. So one of the things that I'm quite curious to see in the great investment in technology that we're seeing from so many platforms is at what point will there be a heavier emphasis on reporting that is not investment related, but is related to the goals that all of us have when we engage a financial advisor. So that's number one. Uh, Number two, uh, I think you referenced this in the client experience. What we know is that the best experience you have anywhere is the same experience you want everywhere. And so the question is whether you can recall in any experience you've had with any provider, whether it's in financial services or something else, that you would like to replicate or at least match in the delivery of that experience to your own clients. And this is becoming a challenge, especially in growth-oriented firms, because you outstrip your ability to serve clients well, and you have to recognize what is it that they want. And 
This becomes even more of a challenge when the because of the pricing structure that so many firms have. I mean, the odd thing is this is the only business I know where clients pay for the value they bring rather than the value the provider brings. And <laughs> so at, at some point you have to say, okay. well, uh, I have to match the service offering with the price in dollars people are paying, not just in basis points. Uh, I think the third thing that's interesting is that we have an acute talent shortage. It, it continues to be acute. And uh, I, up until this week, was the chair of the Workforce Development Committee for the Center for Financial Planning. And uh, Meg Carpenter is taking over that role. And it's been interesting looking at the growth of the financial planning profession, but you can look generally across financial services and say, we need to do more in order to attract greater amounts of people to this business because there is this oversupply of clients and undersupply of people to provide advice. So I'm excited to see which among these growing firms become uh, committed to becoming the employer of choice uh, in their markets and how that's going to change the way they do things. Uh, and then finally, I would say the age demographics, as well as the gender demographics, but in particular, the age demographics of the financial advisory profession uh, continues to be a challenge. Uh, but what it's causing is a, is a rapid rate of sales of practices that are mistakenly characterized as succession plans. And I don't think of them as succession plans. I think of them as exit plans. And the seller is gaining liquidity and economic benefit from it. But if they haven't built an enduring business before they transition, then it's up to the consolidator to do it. So one of the things that I fully expect is that among the consolidation trend, there will probably be a consolidation of consolidators because eventually we're going to have to see some sort of scale and systemization that uh, occurs within that. And this, by the way, does not mean there will be a disappearance of the solo practitioner and the small practitioner. I saw a report recently where this was the great declaration that seems to be repeated every decade. And uh, just like every other business you know, Small businesses can flourish in this market if their goal is not to become uh, owned by other enterprises. So, yeah, I mean, my God, you touched on so many things there. I mean, just that exit plan and succession plans are two different things, and that they're kind of getting lumped in together. The the influx of all the acquisitions that have been happening, and what's going to happen with all those consolidators that um, bought all of these businesses during market highs um, and how the market is already affecting that, um, even though you, you don't, nobody wants to, nobody wants to write that story, but just a, just so many different things that you, you also uh, took my, I had a question, my next question, which you kind of answered, but I'm going to go back to it is the, uh, is, is the age old, the industry is still struggling to attract talent and um, that to me is such a huge, huge area of opportunity if we start thinking about where we're looking to attract the talent is is becomes a little bit more differentiated. And I know you um, were on the Workforce Development Committee at the CFP board. What were a couple of the learnings or recommendations that you have taken from being a part of that and also being involved in the compensation and staffing study for so long, what kind of resources are in place for firms 
that that maybe can assist them in their way of of thinking about recruiting talent into into their practice. One of the things that surprised me, I think, the most was that the the greatest employers of CFPs and financial planners were the wirehouses and insurance companies rather than the independent practitioners. And that makes sense because they can afford to invest in the development of people. And the average advisory firm is would rather hire experience or somebody who already has a client base. And so uh, one of the things I'm hoping that will come from this uh, merger and consolidation trend is that more independent firms, so to speak, uh, actually uh, invest in the development of talent. Uh, so what we found is that the absence of a career path, much like happens in law or accounting, is a challenge within this business because at each phase of our development, we're trying to wonder what success looks like and what do we need to do to get to the next tier. And in my experience, it takes eight to 12 years to fully bake a partner in a professional services firm. And uh, if there's no path to that development or no recipe for how you're going to, to create that partner, then it really becomes a challenge. I think, uh, secondly, there is uh, an emphasis on hiring people who can attract more business. Uh, and if you look at the process of career development, uh, the first job that every individual has to do is master the job, is to master the technical aspects of the job, and then grow into mastering the client relationship. And once they develop the wisdom and the experience that goes along with uh, becoming a professional, then the expectation of growing the practice by becoming part of the community and attracting clients really becomes key. But I think it is premature to ask people to develop business before they even have the knowledge and how to serve the clients well. So that that becomes an issue. I think thirdly, it's probably not a career widely promoted uh, at any level. Um, you know, we are a country of financial illiterates and fortunately we see more states making financial literacy a requirement uh, within schools, at least at some level. Uh, my hope is that they wouldn't just emphasize investing, but other elements of, of one's life. And I think that the more one is exposed to, to how people make financial choices and how impactful one can be in this, in this career, uh, it's, it's really uh, a great selling point. In fact, you think about it, I mean, it's intellectually stimulating, it's financially rewarding, it profoundly impact the lives of others. Just add long walks on the beach and it's a pretty good personal <laughs> ad. And so you have to say it's got to be compelling at some point. The good news is, I continue to hear from young people, uh, or at least at their parents' encouragement, uh, who are contemplating a career in financial services. And so I know there's some demand, and there are about 200 universities in the country that offer some level of uh, financial education to allow people to come into this career. Yeah, I'm so glad that you touched on um, some of the uh, some of the college programs, university programs that are out there. My first guest for this podcast series was Hannah Moore, who is a uh, female financial advisor who, during COVID, started something called the Externship, which mm -hmm. was an is an online virtual training program for a career in financial planning, and it attracted. Yeah you know, students and university directors and career changers and even those that are new to in the in the financial advice profession. And it's really changing 
the landscape and the snapshot of the type of it of of people that are are kind of looking to see what the financial planning industry is all about. Um, and instead of jumping in, you know, without a life preserver, this training program kind of gives that, you know, cliff notes version of what's a day in what is a day in the life of a financial planner and just the importance of those kinds of programs and just the the exposure and awareness that is coming with it. So I, I agree with you. I think that is just critical. And and kind of speaking on that, you know, leaving an impact, right? This is another part of this podcast, right? Leaving an impact is also something that um, I think is really important to bring out in my interviews with people. And you've done that in such an interesting and tangible way. Can you share a little bit about your mission to improve financial literacy and what you're doing specifically at your former high school in Michigan? Sure, happy to. Uh, and and by the way, the things that uh, that Hannah and others are doing to promote this profession uh, is just a demonstration of why this is such an appealing industry in which to work. Uh, because people realize when they when they've achieved something and they have a passion for it, to be able to promote it in such a constructive way is very healthy. So in my own case, uh, I grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. That's where we are known as UPERS. Uh, people think of Michigan as having uh, just the hand. Uh, we in the UP think of us as having the upper hand. It's a it's a different part of the state. Uh, it's so far north. It's north of Toronto, so it's uh, north of Canada. But uh, up there, it's it's a big, vast uh, part of the state with very few people. And we don't normally think about the market or investing or financial decisions, but it's very much part of our lives. And so Jim Joslin, who is a longtime financial advisor, now retired, formed a TFC Financial in Boston, uh, inspired me because he told me about how he was supporting his former high school in Edina, Minnesota. This is way back when. And I was so inspired by this idea that I reached out to my former high school in Gladstone, Michigan, uh, to understand more about what the opportunities were. I was fortunate in that there was a teacher there who was very passionate about this whole idea of teaching kids how to make financial choices. And she undertook the program with my sponsorship. When she retired, she passed it on to another teacher who, during the economic crisis of 2008, her husband owned a construction firm. They were experiencing this. They knew nothing about uh, the financial choices that people have to make, but they wanted to learn. And she then expanded it to become the only K-12 through financial literacy program in the state of Michigan. And they had summer camps for elementary school kids. They had this full year course for seniors. And more than 50% of the senior class ended up taking that program. Every year wow. from each segment, I would get these notes from kids going through these programs uh, when from their parents telling me how profoundly impactful it was. And there are great examples of kids who've now gone into the profession, but even more important, the choices they're making are the right choices for financial reasons. I think that's um in fact when I was at Investment News we did a we did a cover story on it and I also talked to one of your 
one of the uh, young women that were went through the program, Caitlin Gimler, who I believe is a is a financial advisor at a at a fairly large wealth management firm. Um, Plamaran, Plamaran right? in Grand Rapids, yeah. And do and doing very very well, and yeah. just how that you know we always say that one person can make a difference, and so those that are listening that are trying to figure out how they can give back how they can make an impact. That's just, you know, a great example of what someone can do. So that's such an important piece to, you know, better educated investors, Americans around their personal finance. Um, Great example. Thank you. Great, great example. I want to talk about one time when you were on a panel and talking about the importance of mentorship, yet you were there as the mentee (laughs) to a then 20-something-year-old woman, and you were actually talking about reverse mentoring and a reverse mentoring program that that was part of a a Pershing initiative. It was quite the visual seeing you, this established industry leader, being mentored by a next-gen female. So what were the major learnings from that experience that you think important to pass on? Well, that was uh, reverse mentoring program was one of the most profound learning experiences of my uh, professional life. And it really causes one to become vulnerable at a point that you're not likely to be. So this this was uh, a program started by a couple of executives within Pershing, and I fully embraced it. I wasn't the creator of the idea. Jerry Tamburo was, was the initiator. And his idea was that the way our business is changing. Uh, we would benefit uh, by learning from new people coming into the business, that their perceptions of what we're doing as a company and what we should be doing as an industry uh, would help us make more informed decisions rather than relying on our own experiences. And so over time, starting with Kayla, I had four mentors, uh, reverse mentors, uh, who had different relationships with me in terms of how they advised me. And each of them would approach it uh, somewhat differently, but somewhat similarly, where they would give me a a selection of choices to make as to what I want to help on, whether it was technology or thinking about what uh, current generation of people are contemplating. And, And they would interact with me much like a mentor should it was less about coaching and more about insight into how people make decisions. And it was really just such a wonderful dynamic that I would encourage everybody to do that. In fact, what's interesting is with uh, AI and chat GPT coming on the market, uh, what I'm finding is that most people our age are numbed to trying to understand what does this even mean for the business of financial advice. And uh, one of the people on, uh, who I serve on a board with, David Yaffe, is a renowned Harvard professor who said that even at Harvard, they're asking students to teach professors about AI and it, because it's a reverse mentoring program. They're saying, if anybody's going to be passionate about it, somebody who is just starting in life, and they probably know, know more about it than some experienced professor or business executive. And I thought... That is a great example of how we can contemplate. A hundred percent. So on that, in that vein, Hannah, who I alluded to, I work with her on the externship program 
full disclosure. Um, and she is mentoring me on Thursday. We have a one hour call set up where she's walking me through some things as it relates to chat GPT and, and how we are going to potentially use that in, in the externship program. But it's good. I mean, it's again, like that reverse mentorship and embrace it because there are lots of people that know a lot more about all of us in different areas that have something to teach. It's just about being open to it. Um, You know, just a point on that. I, you know, I've often said that the greatest indignity one person commits against another is to underestimate them. And one way to reverse this is uh, for every person listening to this podcast that uh, runs a financial advisor practice or whatever business they're typing or they run, is that they should identify one or two people within their firms who are young and emerging, who probably have a passion for something and invite them to teach or mentor or coach them on that idea. And what you're going through is exactly one of those things I would ask them to focus on. Yep. Yes. It's really interesting. I I couldn't agree more. I'm very excited. I'll let you know what I learned. (laughs) Um, So I can't believe we're at our time. I end every podcast with the same question. It's called Last Line. So with the title and theme of the podcast focused on the future in mind, what is your last line? What key takeaway do you want to leave our audience with? I think the key takeaway is is that the business of financial advice has transformed uh, over the last 50 years from a product-driven business to a client-driven business. And the opportunity to profoundly impact the lives of others uh, couldn't be greater than it is at this time. Wonderful last line. All of these, I think I need to turn all of my guests' last lines into like a coffee table book or something. People still do that. (laughs) (laughs) Or t-shirts, t-shirts. What is your last line? Yeah, always, see, always uh, ideating, right, Mark? Again, just thank you so much for taking time out of your day, for sharing so many great insights and examples on what it takes to be successful now and in the future. I learned something from you legit each and every time we get together. Thank you again for all you've done to make our industry a better place. Seriously, it it really is. Thank Um, you, Suzanne. Thank you for having me on the program. Amazing. Amazing. I learned something. I'm going to use some of the things that that you've suggested today in my own business. Well, I am Suzanne Syracuse. Thanks for listening. And tune in next week when I sit down with Director of Consulting and Education at Charles Schwab, Leslie Tabor. Thanks again for listening. Looking to fast forward your practice goals? Commonwealth Financial Network can help you evolve your business by providing entrepreneurial capital, affiliation flexibility, and tailored business strategies. Everything you need to put your practice into the fast lane. Welcome to a better path to success. Welcome to Commonwealth. To learn more, visit Commonwealth.com. Commonwealth Financial Network is a member of FINRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor.